Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires All right, this is week two of our series, All In, about the power of commitments. Uh, It's a remarkable thing to be able to say, I will be there for you. You can count on me. I will volunteer for Night to Shine. You can count on me. Uh, The power of commitment is a remarkable thing. But we talked last week about how we live in a society that fears commitments. Uh, If I make a commitment, that means I give up my freedom. And I don't want to give up my freedom. I don't want to give up control. I don't want to give up my individuality. Uh, There's a lot of fear around commitment in our society. However, there is an alternative opinion that says it's actually only when you make a commitment that you're free to live the kind of life God intended you to live. We actually find ourselves, we find our identity in the commitments we make. We looked at a great story last week about Elisha who committed to following God and his commitment was so strong that he burned the plow. Uh, It's a picture of all in. He was all in. He will not go back to his old way of life. He will follow God. And this series is about being all in and the tension between freedom and commitment. And today we're going to look at an area where probably more than any other area, everyone wants freedom, and that is financial freedom. And it's ironic that we're looking at this this week. I feel kind of bad telling you about this, but my ticket to financial freedom actually came in this week in a letter. Uh, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but um, this letter is so exciting that I wanted to read it to you. Um, It says, Matthew W. Van Cleve, you have been pre-selected. No, not just selected. I mean, pre-selected. They're so excited about me, they selected me before they even selected me. Uh, In theological circles, this means it would be like double predestination. Um, The letter goes on. In this new year, with your new card, so this is uh, a group of people that are giving me this card. I didn't even ask for it. They're giving it to me. Um, You can exercise your new financial freedom. People with outstanding financial credentials like yours deserve an outstanding credit card like ours. It's actually the platinum gold double uranium card. Um, You have to keep it in a lead wallet. Um, The letter goes on, our credit line matches your financial intelligence. In other words, I get the smart rate reserved for the smart people. Apparently dumb people have to pay an even higher dumb tax or something. Uh, Plus with every dollar you spend, we will give you bonus points that raise your credit ceiling. In other words, if you borrow everything you can today, you'll be given more tomorrow. Um, With a great rate like this, it makes sense to use your card and use it often. The sooner you start using your card, the sooner you start saving. So do the math. The more I spend, the more I save. Now, to give me even more freedom, no matter how much of this money I decide to use, they will let me make a minimum payment. That is just a fraction of what I actually owe them. And then there's some stuff that's really unimportant, so they put it in the fine print. Uh, But I want to actually look at the fine print 
for just a moment with you because it's very interesting. Remember, this is my ticket to financial freedom. Here's how they figure it out. The average credit card debt at the time this got figured out was a little over $10,000. The interest rate of this particular offer is a low 24.99%. Therefore, the minimum payment I could make on this much debt is $200. Um, That's hardly anything. And you might want to know, if I make the minimum payment, how long will it take for me to be free and clear? It's an interesting thing. Uh, Let's say I make the minimum payment every month. I never miss a single one. And I do this for a decade. So after 10 years, I, have, I will have paid $25,230, but I will now owe $11,051. Now, if you're perceptive, you will have noticed that I actually owe more than I did when I got started uh, because of the way that interest works and the way the minimum payment works. So let's say I double my efforts. Let's say I go another 10 years. I don't miss a single minimum payment. By year 20, I will have paid $53,112, but I will now owe $12,213. I'm a person of persistence. Um, I'm perseverance. Like, I just keep going. So 50 years, I'm making minimum payments every month. By year 50, I will have paid $155,611, and I will now owe $16,484. And now I'm probably close to the point of dying, and so I pass this loan on to my kids after I die. And now they extend it out. By year 100, I'm not making this up, my kids and I will have paid $412,116, but my kids will now owe $27,172. You see, it turns out the freedom to acquire and to borrow ends up being kind of a bondage in a lot of ways. But there is an alternative option. There is this alternative wisdom that is embedded in the kingdom of God about the role of commitment in our financial lives. And Jesus puts it like this, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I mean, this is commitment that leads to freedom in all areas of life and including financially. Give, and it will be given to you. Now, before we get into this today, I just want to be careful that we don't misinterpret what Jesus is saying, because this is not a sneaky way for us to get more. Like, if you give, God will give you more. There's actually a kind of perversion of the gospel called the prosperity gospel that says, if you give, it's just a way for God to give you more to make you richer and richer. And I won't mention him by name, but uh, I know of a high-profile television preacher who actually literally said these words, I gave away a pair of expensive shoes, and three or four more pairs of shoes came my way. I gave away several watches, and this very expensive Rolex watch ended up on my wrist. Jesus isn't telling you how to get an expensive Rolex watch. He's simply saying, our God is a generous God, and God loves generosity. When we become generous people, we step into this dynamic that is deeply embedded in the way the kingdom of God works. Jesus makes a very interesting statement. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, if I practice a little amount of generosity, I will experience a little amount of the kingdom of God. The joy, the confidence, the trust, the events that come with God's generosity. 
if I practice a lot of generosity, I will uh, enter into a much deeper experience of the presence of God and his kingdom in my life, including in my financial life. An important question is, what measure will I use? Jesus says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Give and it will be given. Again, that's not a prosperity deal. That's not a sneaky way to get more. This is just life in the kingdom of God. We live in a culture that will send all kinds of messages like, hold on to what you have. Look out for number one. But I've noticed over the years, as people begin to grow spiritually, generosity becomes more and more a part of their lives. And they tend to go through stages of generosity. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to walk through four of those stages with you today and then ask you, what measure are you using? What measure do you want to use? Uh, Where are we as a church? Where are you as a follower of Jesus, if that's what you are? All right, here we go. The first stage is the give nothing stage. At this stage, someone is simply not giving anything anywhere. Um, And this will involve a lot more people than you might guess. A sociologist at Notre Dame, Christian Smith, has done a lot of work in this area. In one study he did, he learned that one out of five Christians in America is giving nothing. Uh, nothing to charity, no, uh, nothing to uh, charity, either secular or religious. One in five Christians in America give nothing at all. Um, among people with no faith, that percentage is even higher. Uh, now, at each stage, there will be thoughts going on that keep us at that stage. Um, and it's interesting about people who give nothing. Um, What will keep you at this stage uh, isn't necessarily what you think, but it's what you don't think. Uh, Most people who give nothing are not thinking, I'm not giving nothing. Um, You're also not thinking about what you could be giving. You're thinking about what you don't have. This is from the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Interesting, isn't it? Whoever loves money never has enough. This experience of the more I get, the less I'm satisfied in our day is actually being called effluenza. It's a combination of affluence and influenza. It's like the wealth sickness. Um, And this started with a teenager who got into legal trouble and his parents got lawyers to fight to get him off with a plea that he's suffering from a kind of disease that he is so spoiled, that he is so entitled by so much stuff, that he's afflicted with affluenza, and it's impaired his ability to know right from wrong. Now, the writers of Scripture do not say that if you have a lot of money, you're exempt from moral responsibility. But they do say that money and the love of money, the obsession with money, can make us kind of crazy, that it will be associated with a kind of a certain way of thinking, The Apostle Paul said to young Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager eager for money will have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The number one tool the enemy will use to keep you in this give nothing category, if that's where you are, is simply distraction. It's just distraction. It will just be that you don't think about what am I giving or what am I not giving. You just think about other stuff. And you feel like, I would never be able to give because there's just so much stuff that I don't have. 
A lot of people are just captivated by that. A second thought that will be common for people who give nothing, which is a lot of people in our culture and 20% of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, the thought is, you know, poor people are just not like me. Poor people probably don't work hard like I work hard. They probably don't have the ethic that I have. They probably don't mind being poor. They're just different. It's very interesting. A lot of people live with this thought, if I had more money, I would be more generous. And the fact is, statistically, the lower someone's income, the higher a percentage of their money they give away. It's very interesting when you think about the basic expenses of life. Uh, When I was a kid growing up, the standard rule of thumb was that about 10% of your income should go toward housing. Has anyone noticed that that's kind of crazy in California? Yeah, in in areas like ours, experts will say sometimes it's like around 30%. uh, Maybe 30% of your annual income ought to go toward housing. Now, I just want you to take a guess. Would you just like turn to the person next to you, guess how much of the annual household income gets eaten up by housing in East Palo Alto? Um, If you don't know East Palo Alto, it's an economically disadvantaged community on the peninsula. It's a poorer community in one of the wealthiest areas in the world. So turn to the person next to you just real quick. Just take a guess. What percentage of the annual household income from one household gets eaten up by housing in East Palo Alto? All right, this is from a ministry in East Palo Alto uh, called Able Works. The correct figure is 105%. I know, how is that possible, right? I'll tell you how. Because you get three or four or five families crammed together in a tiny little space that was built for one family. There's a whole bunch of people trying to live in a a facility that was never built for that many people. And they do that day after day, week after week, year after year. And that happens in the Bay Area. See, when you live and you don't have resources, you generally live really close to other people who don't have a lot of resources, and they're real people. I mean, they're your brothers and sisters and your mom and dad, and you ache to give to them, and so you do. But if you have a lot of resources... There's this kind of weird thing where under-resourced people just become kind of an abstraction, just a number. You see, the evil one will keep us thinking this way, and that's part of what supports this mindset that says, I'm okay with not giving anything. But that's not where the kingdom of God is. Give, and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. A lot of times when you get to know God and you begin to pursue spiritual growth, you'll say, you know what, I can't stay in this category. I can't just keep living without giving anything. And that will often lead to the next stage, which might be called occasional giving. If I'm here, I'll give sometimes and maybe I'll give sporadically. You know, if I'm at church and the offering basket goes by, it might be kind of embarrassing not to give anything. And so I'll pull out my wallet and I'll take a look and If I have a bill that's not too small because that would be kind of goofy, uh, but it's not too big because I wouldn't want to do that, Um, if it's the right amount, I'll kind of throw it in the offering. Or if I see an ad for a hungry child in another part of the world that, you know, makes me, like, moved, then I'll give to that. But I don't want to be committed. I don't want to be tied down. I'll just kind of give when 
the, the Spirit moves me. You know, in the research I mentioned by Christian Smith at Notre Dame, uh, one guy who was a follower of Jesus, he said, Jesus said, you're to give as you feel led. Now, can anyone tell me where in the Bible Jesus said, give as you feel led? You're not going to find it anywhere in the Bible. Uh, the Apostle Paul did say, God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, but the idea is not, if you're not cheerful, don't give. You know, there's this weird thing, if I give based on guilt, the problem is, when the guilt goes away, then my motivation to give will actually go away. There's an old story, it's true as far as I know, the IRS has an anonymous account where if people have been cheating the government out of their taxes, and their conscience bothers them, they can actually send money in anonymously. Uh, supposedly, it got a note one time. Dear IRS, I've been cheating you on my taxes for years, and my conscience is bothering me. Enclosed, find a check for $1,000. If my conscience doesn't feel better, I'll send in the rest. <laughs> the idea is, if I'm just giving as a way to clear my conscience, well, then when my mood changes, then my giving will change. The writers of Scripture have quite a different uh, message about giving. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian church to do. On the first day of every month, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. In other words, giving ought to be systematic. It ought to be in proportion in keeping with your income, and it ought to be intentional, saving it up. And this leads to the next stage of giving that will often occur with people who are growing spiritually, and that is tithing. And I want to talk about this because this is important for our church and for following Jesus. Tithing is talked about quite a lot in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, we're told to give a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. There was this teaching that the first tenth simply belongs to God. Uh, they wouldn't even talk about giving an offering. They would just talk about bringing their tithe. Uh, so actually, technically, tithing is not giving, it's returning. It's returning what belongs to God. So a question about tithing is this, what exactly does it mean to tithe? And I want to get into this because the word tithe actually gets thrown around kind of loosely. Uh, someone will say, I tithed $5 last week. Well, it would be tithing $5 if you earn $50. Uh, a tithe literally means one-tenth or 10%. To tithe means to give 10% to God out of the income that he has blessed you with. And part of the teaching around this is to give the first 10%. In the Old Testament, it was written around an agrarian economy, and that usually meant crops. Um, and they would use the word first fruits. I give the very first tenth. Um, this means if I'm paying my bills, the very first check that I write is 10%. That goes to God. And for those of you who don't know, a check is a little piece of paper that's used kind of like cash. Um, and cash is a little piece of paper that's kind of used like a check. Um, tithing is something I do with the first 10%. Another question around tithing is, wasn't tithing part of the Old Testament law that Jesus came to free us from? Well, let me talk about this for a moment because sometimes you'll hear this idea. Actually, tithing goes back before the giving of the law. Uh, Moses was at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. He brought the law. Uh, tithing was practiced actually a long time before that. Uh, 
Abraham, who came before Moses, uh, goes to the priest named Melchizedek and gives a tenth of everything he had. It actually goes back before the law. And then when Jesus comes along, he doesn't actually say, you know, well, now that I've come, uh, you don't need to tithe anymore. In fact, he does mention tithing in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and, and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. In other words, Jesus says tithing is a good thing, but it's really kind of like having training wheels on a bicycle. It's going to move you toward justice and generosity. Uh, one of the ways I think about this is, is like from zero to like 100% of what I have, if like 10% is right here, um, does being generous mean giving less than 10% or giving more than 10%? Well, for me, it would mean giving more than 10%. And my guess is for a number of you, after Jesus came and brought you the love of God and gave his life for us and gives the Holy Spirit to us, probably being more generous would not be on the left side of a tithe. You see, tithing can kind of be a helpful benchmark. It's not a legalistic thing, but it's kind of a gauge. It's kind of a concrete, concrete way of asking, am I growing in generosity? Here's another question people will have when it comes to tithing. What if I can't afford to tithe? And this is real interesting. This actually is the primary thought that will keep most people from tithing. Uh, in the research Christian Smith did, only about 10% of people who follow Jesus give a tenth or more of their income to God. Uh, and the number one reason behind it is, I couldn't afford to tithe. Like I can barely afford to live on what I'm making right now, I could have never afford to do that. Uh, it's like the wealthy guy who became a follower of Jesus, and he found out about tithing, and he said to his friend, like, I made $500,000 last year. I mean, that's $50,000. I can't afford to do that. Will you pray for me about this? And so his friend prayed, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would lower my friend's income to the point where he can afford to tithe. <laughs> we tend to think, I can barely make it on 100% of what I'm living on. I could never make it on 90% of what I'm living on. Well, God is not asking you to make it on 90%. God is saying, trust me with the first 10% and then see what you and I will do with the resources you have. See, the money thing is really a trust thing. Um, and this is a fundamental principle uh, about the way money works. And it will always bring us back to this. You will not be able to understand the value of money if money is your greatest value. Um, it's an old saying, 20 bucks is 20 bucks. It's kind of a goofy story, but I, I think it makes the point. There's this old couple, Mel and Betsy. Uh, they go to a carnival, and there's this uh, pilot giving rides in an old biplane for 20 bucks. And Mel really wants to go. Betsy doesn't want to go. She says, 20 bucks is 20 bucks. I don't want to go. And the pilot says, you know what? I've been hearing that debate for decades. I'm tired of it. Here's what I'll do. I'll take you up in this plane. If you don't whine, if you don't say a word, the ride's on me. But if you make a sound, you each have to get me 20 bucks. And they get in this old biplane. He goes up in the sky. It's an unbelievable ride. He's doing like barrel rolls and somersaults and loop-de-loops. And he goes around twice, not a peep from each of them. 
in the plain lands. He says, this is amazing. I mean, this was the most daring ride I could give you. I can't believe it, but I didn't hear a sound. You didn't make a peep. Mel says, well, I almost did when Betsy fell out of the plane. <laughs> 20 bucks is 20 bucks. Except here's the thing. Followers of Jesus said, you know, five loaves and two fish are five loaves and two fish. Except when you give them to Jesus. And then they're not just five loaves and two fish anymore. Then God does amazing things with them. You see, 20 bucks is 20 bucks. Except when you give it to Jesus. And then you just never know what he's going to do. There's a passage in the book of Malachi. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, as far as I know, in all of the Bible, the only place where God invites people to test him is in this business of tithing. It's like he knows we're afraid. It's like he knows we're unlikely to do it. Now, the number 10, when you study its meaning, is a very interesting number biblically. Uh, do you know what the number 10 means in the Bible? It means test. I mean, just think about this. How many plagues were there in Egypt to test Pharaoh's heart? How many were there? There were 10. How many commandments did God give to test our obedience? 10. How many lepers were healed to test to see who would come back to give gratitude to Jesus? 10. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25 about bridesmaids waiting for a bridegroom. They had their preparedness tested. How many bridesmaids were there? 10. How many disciples were there? There were actually 12. I was just testing you. I mean, throughout the Bible, the number 10 is associated with testing. And God wants to know, will you love and trust money or will you love and trust me? Will you return 10% to God? And, you know, some of you cynical types are saying, you know, is Blue Oaks, like, struggling financially right now? Like, is that what's driving this? Check our budget. I mean, we're right on budget. We're having a great year. We actually had the largest giving month in our history in December. I mean, this is not about Blue Oaks. This is about you and God. That's it. This is what the writer of Deuteronomy says. This is from the Living Bible. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this one down. It says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. God's actually testing you. He wants to know if you're going to be faithful. It's like God is saying, will you love and trust money or will you love and trust me? Will you love and trust money and things and material resources or will you love and trust me? Jesus said in Luke 16, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's testing you. You see, here's what God knows. God knows that for most of us, money and things will be the number one competitor for our hearts. Truthfully, many of you, uh, you might find yourself wanting to be defensive as you're hearing this. And the reason is because for most of us, money is the number one competitor for our hearts. Money promises what only God can give. Let me just tell you what I mean. 
Let me give you four things money will promise you. Money will promise you security. If you have more, you will be more secure. Money will promise you freedom. If you have more, you will be more free. Money will promise you power. If you have enough, you will be powerful. Money will promise you significance. If you have enough, you'll be important. But in reality, only God can provide security. I mean, you could have millions of dollars, but when your kid gets hit, by, gets hit by a car, you realize that all the money in the world cannot make you secure. Only God can provide true freedom. Only God can provide true power. Only God can provide true significance. Um, you can have all the money in the world, but it's only through Jesus that we can find true security and freedom and power and significance. You know what money is? Money is a counterfeit God. It wants you to love money. It wants you to worship money. And God wants to know, will you love and trust money or will you love and trust me? That's why Jesus said very clearly, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Interesting thing, isn't it? You cannot, he could have said a number of things. He could have said, you cannot serve both God and your job. You cannot serve both God and your house. You cannot serve both God and power. But he said you cannot serve both God and money because he understands that money is a counterfeit God. Are you going to love money or are you going to trust money or are you going to love God and trust God? You know, if the prophet Malachi stood before Blue Oaks today, he would probably say, hey, Blue Oaks, I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what the opinion polls are saying about me and my prophetic word about God. Malachi would say, hey, Blue Oaks, you've got to do a heart check. Do you love and trust money or do you love and trust God? And Malachi was just so straightforward that he'd probably say, some of you have heart disease and you need to get it checked out. Jesus said there will always be a clear winner in the God versus money battle. No one can serve two masters. One will always win, either God or money. Malachi's question to you today is who's the clear winner in the God versus money battle that's raging in your heart? So we're going to do something as a church to show God that money is a counterfeit God in our lives. Uh, it's something called the tithe challenge. And we've done this before. And the idea is real simple. And that is for three months, just tithe. Just return to God the first 10% of whatever God gives to you. And then at the end of that three-month period, if God is clearly not involved in your financial life, if it's clearly not sustainable, Blue Oaks will refund everything that you've given during those three months. Put God to the test. Because I believe you will see the hand of God at work in your finances. Test me in this, God says. If you want more information about the three-month tithe challenge, uh, just check that box on your Next Step card that says tithe challenge. Um, make sure you include your name and email because I'd like to uh, get you a part of a group that I want to send encouraging uh, notes to over the course of the next three months, and I want to be praying for you. Or you could text the word tithe to the number on the screen. Uh, that number is also listed in your bulletin as a next step, so you can do that later if you want to do it later. Um, but please let us know uh, so that I could uh, send you uh, encouraging emails this week. All right, there's one more level that I just want to say a word about and that is sacrificial giving. Uh, Jesus was watching people give one time, and there was a widow, and she gave two of the smallest coins that existed. And as Jesus looked up, 
He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus said to his disciples, like she's given more than everyone else because she just trusted God with everything. Now, I would say that some of you probably know a way, way more about this than I do, uh, but Kathy and I have tasted this at points in our lives. Um, we've always tithed to our local church, and we give to other ministries, and we sponsor children through Compassion International, but there have been times in our lives when we have felt like adjusting our lifestyle or doing something out of the ordinary so that we could give more. Um, the Everyone Initiative was an example of that, where we gave 10% to the building fund uh, in addition to the 10% that we were giving to the general fund. And I have to tell you, we have not struggled financially over the, next, or over the last three years, uh, living on 80% of our earnings. As a matter of fact, God has continued to provide way more than we need. Um, I was talking to someone who gives over 30% of what they earn back to God. And this is what he said, I haven't hit the pain point yet. You know, the biggest risk that you can run financially is not to trust God with your money and forget that one day your life is going to end and the money is not going to save you. I read a parable this week. A guy gets visited by an angel and the angel says, I'll give you anything you want. He said, I'd like a copy of the Wall Street Journal from one year into the future. And he gets it, and he goes immediately to the stock market. He starts writing down stock prices. He's thinking, man, I'm going to make a fortune this year. And then he looks over, and on the obituaries page, he sees his name. You see, here's the deal. Money doesn't love you. Money didn't die on a cross for you. Money can't save you. But God loves and God loves to give. And to be a part of the kingdom of God, to just trust God, to test God, and to say, God, I'm going to trust you with my finances, that will lead to this kind of financial freedom that spending or acquiring never will lead you to. Give, and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So let's just measure real well all right, living in the greatest wealth-producing center in the history of the human race. Let's just measure real well. All right, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you know the truth about us. Uh, you know we just are so easily scared when it comes to finances. And I just, it feels to us like, our security or our identity or our worth or our success or our, our peace or our satisfaction is all kind of wrapped up in our house or in our bank account or in our lifestyle. And God, we just thank you that you are a gener generous God and that you love to give. God, would you help us to live with that kind of generosity? God, would you help us to follow Jesus with the kind of courage and trust that it will need? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our 
weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.